Hello and welcome to an inconvenient show, the little podcast slash radio show presented by me and Claudia, all about environmentalism and what we as students can do, named after for those eagle-eyed listeners of eagle-eyed listeners (laughs) of you who will uh, have noticed an inconvenient truth was the film made by Al Gore in 2006 that really brought climate change into the mainstream, can't think of the word, um, consciousness. Okay, consciousness. Consciousness. Um, That'll do. (laughs) Anyway, this week we are talking all about Sea Spiracy, the Netflix documentary, and also fisheries, fishing, sustainable fishing. And we have a lovely special guest, Indeed. We were lucky enough to have one of my lecturers, actually, Dr. Bryce Stewart, who's a marine ecologist and fisheries biologist who specialise in sustainable ocean management. He's written tons of really great papers, tweets, and has been on some amazing interviews about the topic. So when it came to it, we couldn't think of anyone better to do it. Let's jump right in. So after having watched the documentary Sea Spiracy, the take home message I got was that we shouldn't eat fish. Um, due to its environmental impact. Now, as someone who's always eaten fish as a way to reduce her meat intake, this came as quite a shock. I know you specialise in conservation of fisheries, so would you agree? Should we be eating fish? Yeah, that's a really big question, I guess. Um, I think a lot of people probably don't think as much about the production of their food as maybe they should, because obviously all food production systems have an impact on the natural world. So, you know, I mean, look around England, for example, the the green and pleasant sort of land of fields and hedgerows. I mean, it's all completely changed from how it naturally would be because of agriculture. Um, in the ocean, the impacts really depend on the types of fishing and where they're done and how effectively that is managed. So, you know, certainly there are some major issues in some parts of the world and for certain species. Um, But sustainably managed fisheries actually are still a really excellent choice. You know, obviously if you choose not to eat fish, that's absolutely fine. That's your Mm -hmm. personal decision. But in many ways, um, fish is a really good option for providing protein and very nutritious. And then again, for um, a number of people, in fact, you know, billions of people, it is the only way for them to get protein. So, you know, you have to sort of balance all of those different factors. Yeah. Thank you very much. Because as a student, tuna is one of my go-to types of fish. It's cheap. It's easy. It's extremely versatile. It's my go-to sort of busy day of lectures, lunch, um, or a component at least. But there's been a lot of talk about how um, actually tuna fishing is one of the most harmful activities in terms of how it damages the oceans physically but also the dolphins and all the bycatch that um also get dragged along and so and they were talking about how labels can actually sometimes not be entirely transparent in terms Mm. of something that might be labeled as sustainable and dolphin friendly sometimes isn't so how can we get around that how can i know that as a student or even just as a person the tuna that i'm buying isn't actually doing more harm than good sure 
So, you know, tuna is something that really illustrates the point I was just making about how it, it's really context dependent. So there's like over 30 different species of tuna, and obviously they're all over the world in different places. There's about seven species that are fished for commercially. The main one that you'll get in cans is skipjack tuna, which is a very fast growing species. And in pretty much all parts of the world, the stocks of, of skipjack are in a healthy condition. So it's extremely reproductive and, you know, the stocks are turning over really fast. So you can actually produce quite a lot of tins of tuna from skipjack. Then the issue comes in as to how they're caught. And so, um, you know, certainly there are issues with one of the main methods for tuna is, is to use these things called purse seines. And these are these great big nets that are taken out in a circle around a school of um, tuna, and then they're pulled together. So hence the purse sort of uh, analogy. Mm -hmm. um, and absolutely things can be caught in those purse seines that you don't want to catch. So they might be sharks or turtles or dolphins. They go to a lot of effort, obviously, to release them. They don't want to catch those sorts of things. But there is, you know, there is unwanted bycatch. There is, you know, death of marine mammals, unfortunately, in that production system. A better choice is what's called pole and line or line caught tuna. And that is where um, the fishermen are basically individually catching the tuna one at a time with a, a pole and a line, as the name suggests. Mm -hmm. So that's the main method of fishing, for example, in the Maldives. And they can actually produce quite a lot of tuna that way. And so, you know, that's personally what I look for when I'm in the supermarket is pollen line caught tuna, um, just because it's a much better choice environmentally and there's basically no bycatch, for example. So there's little things like that that you can do to, I guess, make a better choice for the planet. So I shop online and this is an issue I have when I'm trying to buy tuna because it doesn't ever tell you whether it's line caught or like net caught it always says oh dolphin friendly um but it never tells you whether it's line caught or not online mm. and you don't know until it actually mm -hmm. arrives in your house <laughs> <laughs> so i'm wondering if there's any other kind of tells or like yeah i mean if it doesn't yeah. tell you that's really difficult um I mean, one of the things I, I always recommend for people who like to eat seafood but want to do so sustainably is to look at the Good Fish Guide by the Marine Conservation Society. Um, and that has sort of two levels of searching for information. So one is where you don't need very much, and it scores the, the seafood products or the fisheries from one to five. So one being the best choice, five being don't even go there. Um and so probably for something like that, it would give you an amber rating where you don't really know very much. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I guess the point is if you don't know and you want to be cautious, then you probably should avoid it um, and therefore try to try to find out information <laughs> about what exactly it is, what kind of tuna and how it was caught. And one of the things that a lot of those NGOs and even as scientists we do is is lobby businesses and supermarkets to actually label their products much better so you know what you're getting. Because that is a big problem in seafood in general um, is, is poor labeling. And so that really affects your ability to make good choices. Is there any way, and this will probably be brought up again towards the end, is there a way that students can get involved in those lobbying efforts? 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I think, say, at the University of York would be great is if the food outlets made a commitment to only sourcing sustainable seafood. Yeah. Um, and there's an organization, I think it's called Sustainable Fish Cities, who who work on this specifically. So, you know, we do have like in Wentworth, we have now a vegetarian vegan uh, cafes, which is, you know, great that that's available. But even in the other ones, it would be really good to see all the food le- food outlets actually being careful about what they um, what they stock, what they supply. And I think, it, you know, the university, as it sort of moves into a new phase, one of its big commitments is around sustainability. So it would very much fit with the wider university's objectives as well. Yeah, that would be amazing. I think also because there's that misconception that sustainably sourced food can be a lot more expensive, um, which I think deters a lot of students who might be on a budget to from actually even looking into it because they think, oh, sustainable organic, that's just going to be so much more expensive than, I don't know, Aldi's own brand, um, yeah. which doesn't tend to be the best. Um, but actually, that's that's actually, I know lots of people think that, but it's actually not really true when it comes yeah. to seafood. So organic products, um, yes, they are often more expensive. But when you actually think about it, wild fish is an organic product. You know, it's grown in the wild with no chemicals, mm-hmm. no, you know, not in cages or anything like that. Um, fish farming is a different matter, but wild-caught fish is an organic product. So you can actually, finally, you should mention Aldi. They actually have a really good seafood sourcing policy. So you'll see a lot of their products have um, either the Marine Stewardship Council eco-label or the Aquaculture Stewardship Council label. And both of those are really good choices. Um, so I personally buy a lot of my fish from Aldi because it's, you know, it's a good, it's, it's cheap, but it's also, um, you know, guaranteed to be uh, from these sustainable sources. That makes me feel so much better because all of my shopping at uni is also from Aldi. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> at least I know my lunches are being as sustainable as I'd want them to be, <laughs> which is always important. And I actually came across your articles about Seaspiracy and this topic um, because after watching the documentary, I thought, oh, I need to know more about this because there was a lot that was left unclear to me. Um, and I also noticed that you focus on ways of making oceans more sustainable. So what does a sustainable ocean look like? How can we make sure that practices in the future um, are a lot better than they are today? Yeah, it's a really good question, isn't it? I mean, it's something I've sort of spent my whole career trying to yeah. help with. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a whole combination of things. I mean, certainly in terms of fisheries and sustainable seafood, I do recommend that people look at things like the Marine Conservation Society Good Fish Guide and also they go for those eco-labels. Now, the film criticises the Marine Stewardship Council in particular, Mm -hmm. um, which I personally thought was extremely unfair because, you know, 99% of what they do is really, really good and they have really driven a lot of positive change in the way that fisheries are managed. Um, Unfortunately, some things slip through the net, you know, no pun intended. (laughs) Um, The fishery that was really sort of highlighted as showing bad practice in the film actually lost its certification well before the film was made because of the issues highlighted. So, you know, I do recommend those 
those eco-labels and looking at that advice. But there's lots of other things that people can do. I mean, climate change is a massive problem in the ocean, just like it is everywhere else. Actually, something like 93% of the heat that is in the atmosphere is absorbed by the ocean. So climate change is affecting the ocean more than anywhere else. You know, And a lot of the animals that live in the ocean, they take their body temperature from the water around them. So I say to people, it's a bit like, you might think, oh, the ocean's only warmed up one, one degree or one and a half degrees. But think how sick you feel when you get the flu or whatever and your temperature goes yeah. up one degree. And that's the same for the fish, basically. So temperature changes are having a really big effect on the ocean. And then we've got ocean acidification as well. And this is where the same carbon dioxide that's causing warming is being absorbed by the ocean and it's changing the chemistry and it's particularly affecting things like coral, um, shellfish, and certain plankton that all use um, calcium carbonate to build their structures. So the change in the chemistry basically weakens those structures. So things you can do to address climate change, like um, you know, rethinking the way you travel, mm-hmm. um, being efficient with uh, the way that you either heat or cool your house, um, you know, just reducing waste in general, like um, recycling stuff actually reduces the effects of climate change because you're not buying new stuff that needs more energy to produce it. Um, So there's all the regular things that you can do to mitigate climate change. But then you can also get more directly involved with things like beach cleans as well if you want to, you know, get your hands dirty. Um, And uh, there's groups like, I mean, even the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust in this part of the world do beach cleans. Um, You can look that up online. And um, nationally, the Marine Conservation Society as well organized a number of beach cleans around the country. So things like that are a really good thing to get involved with. Um, And then you can just take it from there, really, and volunteer for environmental groups. Um, Yeah, lots of stuff you can do. Fantastic. How would you recommend for a student to get their flat involved? Because I know it can be really hard when you're part of a household I've been personally quite lucky um when you're part of a household that maybe don't share the same views on climate change and the importance of conservation how would you recommend we engage more people into recycling responsibly and making sure that we're doing our bit even not leaving the lights on for example yeah I mean this is it just leaving the lights on is um uh, is bad for the climate is yeah. ultimately bad for the ocean Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, this is uh, something that scientists, environmentalists grapple with on a constant basis around the world. I think there's two things you've got to do is, first of all, you've got to make it easy for people to take positive action. So, you know, obviously making recycling bins and things like that easy, accessible. Um, Yeah, and maybe it's always a fine line working out how to communicate to people but one of the most effective ways is often to sort of make it personal and Mm -hmm. and say look you know okay don't don't worry you know even if you don't care about the climate like switch the lights off because it's going to cost you more every month than the electricity bill or whatever it is um and yeah, try and try and sort of get them to think about the future, maybe even say, you know, what kind of world are your children going to grow up with if we don't take action now? I mean, this is really what Greta Thunberg 
sort mm-hmm. of takes that line and says, you know, what have you done to us? <laughs> Make, yeah. You know, she really yeah. accuses the current generations of, of, of messing up the world. Well, do you want to be in a position, you know, you guys, when you're 20 or 30 years older, when you're at my age, um, of, of your kids or whoever it is, younger people sort of saying, you know, why didn't you act? You knew in 2021 that the world was facing a climate crisis and a biodiversity crisis, and you didn't do everything you could to address that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what was wrong with you? Why didn't you take action? Yeah. Why didn't you take it seriously? It's it's difficult, though. You've got to strike the balance. You've got to try and work out what works for individual people um, and, and play to that sort of whatever you think they'll respond yeah. to. It's not one, There's not one size fits all. Yeah, because I'm pescatarian and uh-huh. I find my flat can be kind of almost hostile to me using meat substitutes and stuff. It's a bit of a weird one. But mm. if you say something to them like, I'll oh, switch the lights off, think of the polar bears, they do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like because that's an ancient one, right? That was like, I don't know about you, Cloudy, but that was drilled yeah. into me in like primary school. Oh. It was what my dad used to say. Yeah. Like when right. I left the lights on, he'd be like, Claudia, but the polar bears and the penguins. And I'd be like, oh my goodness, no. Well, there you go. You know. And it works. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the things, you know, that, I mean, it's, conservation is tricky. Like, you know, probably some people say the fact that the large charismatic animals like polar bears and penguins get too much attention. But if it works, like, why not? You know? Yeah. Um, and the fact is that actually, you know, climate change in the in the Antarctic uh, probably is affecting krill more than anything else, and then that has all these knock-on effects. But that's quite a complicated thing to to sort of get across. Yeah. And um, people you know, don't pe- remember that. <laughs> no, pe- and no one's going to adopt a krill, are they? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, <laughs> so you got to use the use the things that work, basically. Yeah. It's really interesting. When you were talking about Greta Thunberg, it reminded me of an article I read earlier this week. So I'd seen a podcast um, by National Geographic on this photographer who'd lived with the Enochs in Antarctica for Mm. almost a year to explore their whaling techniques, um, which they've been doing for years. And I was talking about it with my dad and he said, oh, I have this book Um, there was a magazine from the 1800s and there's an article about whaling in it and I read it and the first thing that um, it's written by the surgeon who was on the boat he described that they noticed there were a lot less whales around and that the ice sheets were a lot thinner Mm. so we knew about the impacts and sort of the degradation of the oceans almost 200 years ago yet somehow we haven't done anything about it until now which is quite shocking to think about why do you think that is yeah that's a really good question I mean I certainly was learning about climate change when I was in a levels and you know first year uni I wrote an essay about uh, climate change you know I I hate to say how long ago this was but it was in the 1980s (laughs) so you know we knew yeah the whales I mean Whales were hunted many to near extinction. In some cases, some species did go extinct. And again, when you read the old logs, like people, uh, the sailors used to have to go further and further afield. Um, You know, they were sailing from Boston all the way around the southern tip of South America and up into the Pacific to find whales. And that should have told them something, 
but it seems to me from my experience in fisheries things seem to need to get really bad before people take action mm-hmm. and you've also got this um this phenomenon as you probably heard called shifting baseline syndrome so this is like where each generation only really can think back about maybe 10 or 20 years to how things were and so they might go oh yeah there used to be more fish or you know i used to be able to see dolphins in the bay when i was young and i don't really see them anymore but it's not a dramatic change but if you add that up over 100 years or 200 years yeah there's been this slow creep of, you know, loss of species or whatever it is. And so that, again, is something that people need to be reminded of. And I think something that's been really valuable um, for the environmental movement in the last probably decade or so has been people actually using historical information to inform how much things have changed and saying, look, you know, I mean, a a great example um, uh, in this part of the world is in the southern North Sea, there used to be enormous beds of oysters that used to extend, you know, nearly all the way from England to France. Wow. And they just don't exist at all. Like native oysters are very rare around the UK now. And this we're talking about hundreds of miles of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And because oysters filter the water and they stabilize the sediment, the sea used to be clear. So, you know, you go down to the beach now in the North Sea and you just accept the fact that it's kind of dirty and, and muddy and <laughs> brown. Yeah. But it didn't used to be like that. You know, 150 years ago, it was kind of blue <laughs> and clear. <laughs> and you can read this stuff in the historical documents. And there's maps of where the oyster beds used to be. But we've accepted the fact that they're gone and that you know, the North Sea is brown and cold. And like, yeah. <laughs> it's this change that sort of happened slowly and almost, you know, because it's taken a while, um, people have, have lost sight of it. But when you go back and look at these historical documents or even old paintings, for example, um, you can look at old paintings from like the fish markets, say in Scotland, and you can see species like that don't exist, like sturgeon, for example, which is extinct now in this part of the world. And you go, wow, they actually used to live here because people used to catch them and eat them. Um, And so I think using that to really communicate like what we've lost uh, um, is powerful. And then to say, well, you know, what's it going to be like in 50 or 100 years? Uh, What what will we've lost if we don't change our ways? I think that can be quite, quite strong. Yeah, I remember when I was 10 reading an article about the extinction of giraffes and rhinos and elephants and thinking, wow, so my grandchildren could live in a world where these species don't Mm. exist. Um, And that was sort of one of the things that perked me up. I was 10 um, to think, okay, something needs to be done about this because I love elephants. I want my grandchildren to see elephants. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you do what you can, don't you? I mean, for me, mm-hmm. the big ones are coral reefs because I was lucky enough to grow up uh, in Papua New Guinea, north of Australia. And, you know, we used to go most weekends out on our boat, snorkeling and diving on coral reefs. Oh, that's amazing. And, you know, I have sort of memories and a few photos from back then. And the coral cover was unbelievable. Like, you know, just so much live coral. And now 
it's very rare to find places like that because of climate change and coastal development and things. You know, coral reefs around the world are, um, yeah, really under threat. And they are one of the wonders of the world. Like, absolutely. I don't know if you guys have ever had a chance yeah. to, to snorkel on a coral reef. Um, I went, I saw David Attenborough a few years ago. He actually came to the University of York and, um, yeah, I got to meet him, which was probably one of the highlights of I'm my so life. I'm so jealous. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but one of the questions in, in his uh, talk was, you know, what's the, what's the most amazing experience of your life, David? And he said, the first time I dived on a coral reef, he said, I'll never forget it. It was probably in the 1960s or something. Um, and he said, it was like a whole new world. So to think that that might be largely gone, you know, maybe even by 2050 is just horrendous. Yeah. And that, you know, that keeps me going. Definitely. <laughs> Trying to do everything I can to, to, yeah, to stop the damage that's already been done and to try and hope there's not too much more. Spoken about how individuals can make personal changes and that to, you know, their lives and how mm. that will affect things but how much of a difference does that really make yeah that's a good question like you know some people say uh well what's what does my individual action really matter um i got told this story uh a year or so ago and it was about um this guy walking along the beach was somewhere in the uk and he came across this uh, huge mound of starfish that was washed up on the beach. It spread out for like hundreds of meters, thousands and thousands of starfish. And this happens occasionally for some reason. Um, you know, maybe after a big storm or whatever, the, the starfish, they apparently when they're, they're threatened, they curl up into balls. And then they actually, unfortunately for them, they, then they roll along the seabed and they get washed up on the beach. So this guy was was walking along the beach and he saw this and, you know, it was a pretty horrific sight. And he walked a bit further and he saw this little boy stood by the water's edge, picking up the starfish one at a time and flinging them out into the sea. And, and the guy said to the boy, you know, why are you even bothering? Like, there's thousands of them. What difference can you make? And he just leant down and picked another one up and threw it out to sea. And he said, well, I made a difference to that one. And, you know, that's a really powerful message. Like everything that you do makes a, makes a difference. And think about the fact, like you were talking about influencing your flatmates, you know. And so and maybe they'll meet other people if you convince them about <laughs> sustainability and climate change and biodiversity loss. Maybe they'll talk to their friends and, you know, the whole thing can snowball. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I love being a university lecturer is I get to talk to people like you and think, well, maybe something I say will be, will make an impression. And, you know, and some of you will obviously go on into careers um, in environmental science and conservation and, uh, and, you know, collectively we can make a massive difference. You can't ever stop and think it's hopeless because then it will be hopeless that's my take anyway definitely thank you for that amazing story i think i'm definitely going to carry it with me forever now <laughs> oh something you're right oh wait me yep i think my gp tried to ring me and so it derailed the call apologies 
Uh, let's get this back. Shut the whole screen off. Um, as I was saying, no, thank you very much. It's an amazing analogy. And I think it, when it comes to things like this, we should take a lot of examples from children, actually, because mm. they're never sort of they're never going to give up on an animal I remember when I was a kid I learned that worms escape the ground when it rains because otherwise they drown so for a couple of weeks during the summer I made it my mission (laughs) to go outside and make sure that all the worms were okay and my parents were thinking you're insane (laughs) the garden's huge And I was like, but what if they drown? And what if the snails drown? And some of my fondest childhood memories are actually like saving little birds that had fallen out of the nest. And I think it's so important to remember that maybe our individual impact won't single-handedly solve climate change. I mean, it'd be wonderful if it could. Mm. Um, But the little things, one by one, as you said, throwing one starfish into the ocean can actually make a huge difference. I think it's also sad how the ocean doesn't get as much press in a way. Um, there's, I remember you mentioning in one of your lectures that we probably know more about space than we do about the ocean. And yeah. it's probably because it's less marketable in a way. What do you think? Yeah, there is that. You know, there is obviously around the UK the perception that it's kind of cold and dirty and like, very fairly uninviting i think another problem is this like out of sight out of mind issue in that you can stand on the beach you know down at like bridlington or wherever and look out to sea and it, and it doesn't actually look very different from how it did 200 years ago because you can't see what's under there and you don't know if the seabed's been degraded or the, there's not as many fish as there used to be and you go to the supermarket there's always you know, there's always fish in the fish counter. There's always cans of tuna. And so there's that disconnect between what's going on and actually um, and what you can see, really. And so unless you're, a, you know, you actually get in there, <laughs> if you're a diver or a snorkeler um, or you study this stuff, you don't, you don't get uh, a feeling for these things. And th- that is a challenge. Um, you know, personally for me, I obviously I'm from Australia and and New Guinea and like I grew up with coral reefs and things like that. And people think, oh, that's where it's at. You know, that's the stuff we need Mm -hmm. to care about. But I, you know, I also have a lot of time for the marine life around the UK and there's some amazing stuff around here. And so when I do public talks, I really make a point of, of highlighting that and saying, look, you know, you have basking sharks, the second biggest fish in the world. We have, we have corals and cowrie shells and like amazing kelp forests. And we have, you know, some of the biggest populations of seals in the world. We have like even sharks here. People don't even really, they think, oh, there's only dogfish. But you actually, there's blue sharks, poor beagles, thresher sharks, um, all Dolphins. sorts of stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. I mean, I um, When I first moved to York, I went to Whitby um, on a trip and I saw this sign up on the quayside and it said, you know, whale watching trips here. And I was like, you know, what's that about? And I actually said to the guy, do you ever actually see any whales? And he was like, what, what are you saying? He said, it's rare that we don't see one. So it took a couple of years, but I managed to book a trip on 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 the whale watching boat. And we saw 12 whales in like a couple of hours. Wow. You know, it's the most I've ever seen anywhere. I've been to 
I've I've been whale watching on the Great Barrier Reef and and off America and things like that. I've never seen as many whales there. Scarlett, what are you doing next weekend? <laughs> yeah, a bit later in the year <laughs> they they come. <laughs> like go in about August or September for, out from Whitby. It's amazing. It's incredible. So, yeah. Yeah. No, because I grew up in kind of Norfolk, so okay. I sort of I've seen the impact of the rising sea levels on the communities there because the flooding is you know it's you know there used to be floods but never this regular it's now become like an annual thing um and I've seen I've noticed the quality in the water decreasing I've noticed bird species disappearing or at least becoming even more rare Rare, um although there have been some great bits as well so otters are being reintroduced Mm. um and we have actually seen otters now. That, like I've seen an otter wow. on the Norfolk Broads. Amazing, stunning. Um, but there's so much pushback as well with a lot of the conservation. So the anglers, for instance, and I know this is inland waters, not um, mm. you know seas, but the anglers hate the otters because they eat all the fish. Obviously. <laughs> okay. Do you get that kind of pushback um, with conservation in the oceans? Yeah, a little, a little bit. Like certainly, I guess the equivalent in the oceans are seals, um, you know. And yeah, there's definitely a lot of commercial fishermen who are not big fans of seals. And yeah, it is difficult. You have to, you know, you have to sort of highlight the fact that they are naturally <laughs> present. You know, they have a right to belong. Um, and I think this is yeah, strange strange world we live in sometimes i mean one of the issues in some parts of the world and even some parts around the uk is that the fisheries have have changed from being focused on fish like cotton haddock to shellfish uh like scallops and prawns and this is because the fish stocks have been overfished and so they're they're um you know this is what's left but it actually turns out often you can make more money out of those shellfish and so the fishermen don't want to see the original fish come back um, because actually one of the things with like cotton haddock is they eat the prawns when they're young. <laughs> so if you had more cotton haddock, there would be less prawns, for example. But, you know, you have to, um, you have to really highlight the fact that, okay, I understand where you're coming from economically, but when you simplify ecosystems, when you degrade them in this way by reducing the numbers of species present, you actually leave them quite vulnerable to collapse. So, you know, um, I mean, it's just the easy way to think about it is a shop that only sells one or two products, you know, and what happens if people decide they don't want to buy those products anymore you know the business collapses but if you have a supermarket that sells you know a thousand products it's much more resilient to any changes and it's exactly the same in the ocean or even on the land as well you know more biodiverse ecosystems are much more resilient to change and this is a really important reason why we need conservation to try and restore that natural balance um so yeah that is the message not always easy to again to communicate but I you know I certainly try to push it as much as I can. I think the other really important thing to note because the fishing industry especially in like Britain at the moment has a really loud voice because of Brexit and the fishing mm. waters and stuff mm-hmm. but the fishing industry only makes up like two percent of the economy I think. 
It's a lot less than that. <laughs> it's point one two percent of GDP that we get. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> it's really not that much for the amount of precedence um, that kind of given in terms of rights and stuff. It's it's fascinating to me, at least. The yeah. So strong, it would seem. Yeah, it's it's interesting because. I should say the value of the fishing industry does go beyond that simple monetary sum, if you like. So, you know, um, there's lots of coastal communities where fishing is really important and they're often remote places, west coast of Scotland and like the Shetland Islands and places like this. Um, and fishing obviously as well um, has really shaped like a lot of, I mean, it's shaped the UK, you know, fish and chips is the national dish here. Um like, you know, you go, people go down to Cornwall and Devon for their holidays. They want to see fishing boats in the harbour and all that sort of thing. So we do need to recognise uh, that value. But at the same time, you're right that we do need to give other people more of a say. So, you know, and this is something that I, again, tried to push in terms of when you're trying to work out a management plan for an area is in the past, mostly anything to do with the sea, it was just the fishermen that you were concerned with. Whereas now you have to go, well, what about the people who like bird watching or the tourist offer operators who, um, you know, do wild wildlife watching tours or the, the snorkelers and the divers or even just people who live there? Um, you know, you really need to factor in all of their interests as much as possible. It's not easy, but the sea and what's in it is a public uh, entity, basically. It doesn't actually belong to anyone. Um, you know, and fish, fishermen sometimes have quotas, which is a right to catch fish, but they don't actually own the fish until they're in their boat. So that's a really important thing to remember. You know, they do belong to all of us. So we all should really have a say. It's interesting that you mentioned quotas there, and I know Claudia is looking at her watch. <laughs> oh, don't worry, go for it. It's amazing. I, read, um, I haven't actually seen Seaspiracy, but I read George Monbiot's uh, article about it. Oh, big, right. Big George Monbiot fan. Um, <laughs> and he mentioned how quotas are a small issue because they're kind of seen as like a target as opposed to a limit, if that makes sense. Yes. And I, you know, look, George says a lot of good things and does a lot of good, good work. I don't agree with him on everything. I think he, you know, he's a bit radical for me. He doesn't <laughs> think about people uh, all the time. But, um, but yeah, I think I, I take his point on this in that there's this, the way that a lot of fisheries are managed is using this concept called maximum sustainable yield. So, you know, Claudia, you'll, you'll hear about this next year in ocean management and conservation. Um, and the whole point is what's the most fish we can catch to keep it sustainable? And, you know, for me, that is not really the right emphasis. And it, it's really seeing the fish and the ocean as something that we need to exploit as much as possible. And I think actually what we need to be doing is going, okay, we, you know, Fish is an important source of food, um, you know, and I'm I'm definitely in favour of fishing, but we need to be a bit more cautious and we need to think about all the other values that it provides um, and, you know, some of those other stakeholders that I talked about. And you don't have to max things out all the time, you know. It's like 
it's like anything, you know, it's, it, you don't sit down at dinner every night and think, what's the most I can possibly eat? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, you'd be, you'd be very unhealthy if you did. But that, it's the same sort of idea, I think, you know, it's like, what's a, yeah, what's a healthy limit rather than what's the most? I think we, fisheries in the ocean would be in a lot better state if managers took that approach um, or rather yeah, than trying to maximise everything balancing kind of what's absolutely the best the least yeah, you can the, get for the most amount of profit kind of exactly um balance. so so you know even there's a, a instead of maximum sustainable yield there's even another um approach which is just called maximum economic yield which actually involves catching less fish so when there's more fish in the water they're easier to catch so the fisherman doesn't have to spend as much money catching them basically so, you know, and by doing that, um, they also have less impact on the environment in terms of any disturbance of the seabed or bycatch, um, and also less in terms of climate change emissions as well. So restoring healthy oceans is actually a really good target for lots of different reasons. That's fantastic. Thank you very much. I could keep talking about this for ages. I have... <laughs> millions of questions so we might need to have you on for a part two if you'd like <laughs> yeah sure no worries um no but thank you very much I think a nice way of rounding it off could be perhaps are there any extra resources that you would recommend I know you've mentioned um the sustainable fishing lists and I know you've written some really great papers about um the Bay of Fundy for example and how restoring small areas can actually have a much broader impact so is there anything else you'd recommend for people who want to learn more about this yeah it's a big question isn't it i mean there's so many things out there um i think i recommend a alternative film to seaspiracy which is a bit more scientifically balanced and it's called troubled waters and it is available on youtube and it was actually produced by a former student from the environment and geography department oh wow um, for only about 500 pounds, but it's actually a really nice film. It involves in some interviews. I think you do see me very briefly, but I don't worry, I don't speak to the camera. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it takes a global perspective of fishing, but it really it, it is a much more balanced film. So, I mean, you know, check that out. It's done quite well on YouTube, not like not like Seaspiracy, but it's had over 100,000 views. Um, so that's a good place to start. Yeah. I mean, it's, gosh, it's hard to sort of give one resource really, mm -hmm. but I do recommend if for seafood eaters to look at the Marine Conservation Society, they've just redone their website. It's much more user-friendly than ever. So that's a really great place to start. And, you know, you mentioned, um, more positive stories. And, and one of the things that I'm lucky enough to do is work on marine protected areas. Uh, and what's fantastic about that is you get to see firsthand the recovery of the marine life. And it has this amazing ability to bounce back. So it's, um, yeah, the Isle of Arran is actually where I do a lot of work. Um, and that's a fantastic story because it started with the local community there who campaigned for a protected area in their um, in their waters in Lamlash Bay. And uh, it's really just snowballed from there. So they originally got the, the small area designated in 2008 
and then a much, much larger area in 2014. And, you know, uh, myself and lots of students from the Environment Geography Department have been going there for the last decade. We've been monitoring the recovery. You know, you can see numbers of certain species have gone up, you know, as much as sixfold in that time. And, you know, when you go and uh, we we do, for example, with the lobsters, we work with a commercial fisherman and we catch the lobsters that are in the protected area and we, we measure them and tag them and put them back. Some of these things are absolute beasts, you know, that you would never like, you, it's not, my hands are not going to fit in the screen, but <laughs> <laughs> half the length of me sort of thing Wow. Um, that you would never, ever see anywhere else. Uh, it's just the fact that they're being protected and they're able to, you know, grow up basically unimpeded in these areas. And what's great about that is, is they breed at high levels in the protected areas and then they're young spread out into the surrounding areas. So it's, they're like a, a sort of production factory, if you like, of <laughs> young lobsters and young scallops and young fish. So I'm a real supporter of, of these strategically placed marine protected areas Absolutely. as a way of bringing things back. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. I absolutely no loved it. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, there is plenty more to come.